This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's talk about bike lanes. Uh, <laughs> the city uh, is is moving at glacial speed, it seems, with some of these bike lane projects. We had members of the uh, the cycling committee on the program a few weeks ago, and they said that uh, the city is running behind on just about all of the stuff that was in that commitment that they had uh, adopted some years ago, really, now the cycling master plan. Uh, the one that really jumps out at us, of course, is the Claremont Access. Uh, and, and there's been some talk for the last little while about getting a bike lane there, especially since there's a lane of traffic that hasn't been used for the last three or four years. But it's not going to happen anytime soon. Stop me if you've heard this before. It, it, of course, everything moves that slowly at City Hall, it seems. Uh, let's bring Ryan McGreal into the conversation, editor of uh, Raise the Hammer and a strong advocate for the cycling plan. How are you doing this morning, Ryan? I'm good, Bill. How are you doing? Good to see you. you got to be frustrated by the news you got yesterday on this. You know, I, I like it better when you call me in to, to celebrate a good news story, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may never have you on then if we're waiting for this one to happen. I mean, this just this thing keeps getting pushed. It's not even on the back burner right now. It's still in the fridge. It's not even on the stove. Sure. I, I think, you know, it's, it's an old saying that if you want to understand uh, a government's priorities, uh, don't look at the announcements, look at the budget. And, uh, and the, the budget that we allocate to uh, cycling and to complete streets in general on an annual basis is, is tiny. It's trifling. It's even less than the smaller amount that staff recommended in the uh, cycling master plan, which was approved in 2009. And, you know, they said, look, if we spend $2 million a year, we can have this built in 20 years. If we spend a million dollars a year, we can have it built in 40 years. Um, uh, Terry Cook, I think, put it best at the time when he said that uh, they built the Great Pyramids in less time, <laughs> and uh, and maybe we could aim a little higher. Then you know we're not even on track to hit uh, a build out in forty years, let alone twenty. Well, let's look at the two major projects. Uh, the, the Claremont obviously is one that, that you know it's been on the radar, of course, since the the tragic death that occurred there. Uh, what was a little more than a year and a half ago, I guess now. Uh, uh, exactly, just, uh, just oh, about a year ago now. You're right. It was just around ago. yeah, almost exactly a year ago. Yeah, and, and then, of course, the other one that I want to talk about is Bay Street. And you and I have had this discussion in the past before, too. Uh, and that one, I can un- to a point, I can understand the city's position on that, Ryan, because there's federal money involved in that project, and if they don't get this thing done, they're going to lose the federal money. Uh, but where's the sense of urgency at City Hall? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, it makes sense for the province to, uh, or for the city to move ahead uh, with with speed on the the Bay Street cycle track because you know as you say they're getting two hundred ninety five thousand dollars from a higher level of government. My question is how how is it that we can only do one thing at a time in a, a city of over half a million uh, with a with a you know a, a fairly sizable uh, number of, of uh, employees at City Hall? Why is it that they can only do one thing at a time? I certainly I've never heard well we can't we can't resurface the street because we're already resurfacing streets somewhere. I mean we we have multiple projects that we do and we push forward. Again, it comes back to, is there a budget? You know, is, is money being allocated for this? You know, I'm sure there's more than one person in the city who knows how to design a bike lane. We have a whole team of traffic engineers who I think are professionals. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Since that commitment was made, and, and, and since Mr. Ketty was killed last year, uh, a couple of people on council were saying, look, we want to get this fast track. We want to get this thing up there as quickly as possible. And, and now we find out yesterday they haven't even done any design or, or engineering work on this. I mean, come, no, how many times have they driven past it and nobody's decided, hey, maybe we should do something about that? Sure, there's been some preliminary uh, design work, uh, you know, very, very preliminary, like at the point of concept sketches. And um, the, you know, staff presented that, you know, probably about two or three weeks ago. Um, or no, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm confused, actually. I'm thinking about the Bay Street cycle track. Yeah. They, they presented some preliminary drawings uh, earlier this year. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, I, I don't want to, to downplay the complexity of, of actually designing this project. But at the same time, it's not an incredibly complex project. I mean, essentially, we're looking at taking that, that sort of westmost lane of the upbound side of Claremont, putting Jersey barriers along it to, uh, to block it from traffic. And, uh, you know, then there's some, some uh, design involved at the top and the bottom. Uh, you know, I've made the case that I think there should be a few different ways that you can access this rather than just having sort of one pipe in and one pipe out on either end. But these are, you know... Again, it, it comes down to a matter of um, if we want to spend a little bit of money on this, you know, uh, put out a bid, get a consulting company to come in and design the thing for us. I mean, that's what we did with the Cannon Street cycle track. And we got a very high quality, very professional design, which, uh, you know, from talking to city staff at the time, they were really excited. The people who were installing this thing were excited because they felt like they were part of something that was not just the bare minimum. Well, and, and that kind of. 
Sorry, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you about the Cannon Institute. I'm glad you brought that up as, as a comparator here because you were, you're bang on because all of a sudden there seemed to be this this well the welling up of, of enthusiasm for this project, and it got done. They didn't just talk about it. They got it done in very short order. Why can't they do that here? Well, because the political will is not there. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to put the blame on staff for this. They're given the resources that they have, and they're very limited for this type of work. And, uh, you know, when you have councillors saying, well, you know, why can't we do that faster? Well, you have to allocate some money to it. That's council's job, is to, to set the priorities. And by set priorities, I mean allocate budgets, not just say things. And uh, if the budget's not there, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what staff can do. I mean, certainly they've got a little bit of flexibility in moving things around for small projects, but something this big, it needs a political push. And council needs to get on top of this thing. $2.3 million is the number that's throwing out. And, of course, the longer they wait, by the way, that number's only going to get bigger. We know that to be the case in the past. But but I'm looking, and I understand, you know, because we've had this discussion, and, and you know, you've, you've seen the budget pressures that the city's under, and it's going to be a tough budget in 2017. We understand that. But... It's where they spend the money, Ryan. This is you know, when, when the, a councillor or the, the council as a whole says, well, we don't have the money for this. You do have the money for this. It's just that you're spending it on something else. And, and it's a matter of, okay, is this a priority or not? I mean, if you want to look at it this way, from the inner city, wards one through eight, I mean, these guys get a million bucks a year on average. You know, it's, it's, it's free money to say, okay, what do you guys want to spend this on? And nobody said, you know what, maybe I'll dedicate it toward this. Sure. I mean, that would be an option for 2017 for, you know, let's say wards uh, 2, 3, 7, and 8, just, you know, kind of pick wards that would be more or less affected by this. If they each kicked in, say, three or $400,000, and then some money was brought in from the red light traffic fund, I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to put together a couple of million dollars. Exactly. But where's, where's the will? And that's the, you know, that's, that's, that's the distressing thing about this is, we, we don't look at investing in, in cycling connections as, um, well, as an investment. We look at it as a cost. You know, but when we, we build these things, when we build cycling networks that connect to each other and provide people with ways to get around, there are real benefits, benefits that the city uh, enjoys, benefits that public health enjoys, benefits to individuals. Um, you know, and we don't look at that benefit side of the equation. We don't look at it, the improved health, at the improved air quality, at the reduction in collisions and crashes, because every time somebody's riding a bike instead of driving a car, you've actually removed the risk factor from the road. You know, when, when crashes happen that cause damage, those crashes are caused by motor vehicles crashing into things. When you replace a car trip with a walking trip or a biking trip, you actually make the street a little bit safer. We had the debate, uh, and, and I don't want to start opening the wounds up again, about Charlton and Herkimer, of course. So, you know, when, when those programs were put in place, the, you know, the parking and the bike lane, of course, on the, on the curb lane. Uh, and there were a lot of people that talked about, well, you look at the impact it's going to have on traffic, and there's always the, uh, you know, the argument of emergency vehicles got get through and everything like that. I, that's died down, thankfully. But here's when you look at the Claremont project, Ryan, that's not even on the table because, I mean, essentially, it's admitted because of what we've seen over the last little while that the road is doesn't need to be as large as it was. There was a time, obviously, back in the day when that was a very busy road, but we've been without that one lane of traffic for years now and not missed it. It's a natural idea to simply say, well, let's put a bike lane there then. Clearly, it's not as if you're going to, for those who are, you know, of the mind that, well, you're going to impede traffic. You won't impede traffic on the Claremont. That's not going to happen. So that argument's off the table. There's no other argument except the fact that they haven't committed any money to it. Exactly. Yeah, the the, the real real, uh, opponent to this project is, is political will. There's no, uh, as, as you say, the Charlton and Herkimer, that was a challenging project, politically challenging because there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of concern. These are fairly constrained um, inner city streets that already have a lot of competing uses. And so when you want to sort of shift the balance of, okay, how do we allocate the scarce roadway, you're going to get some friction, you're going to get some pushback. As you say, Claremont is a no-brainer. I mean, that's a lane that's just sitting there empty at all hours of the day. There's absolutely no reason why we can't reallocate that for a better use without taking anything away from anybody. And that, that strikes me as the kind of, of easy, you know, sort of political pickings that a politician would want to go for. And, and, and I understand that, you know, the lane we're talking about here is actually on the other side of the road from where we probably would put the bike lane anyway if they're ever going to get around to that. But, but the bones for the infrastructure are there. In other words, the road's already built, and, and the space is already there. 
And and as you say, yes, there's probably going to. I'm not going to try to pretend I'm an engineer. Uh, there's probably going to be some work. At the, there does have to be some work at the top end when this thing is done, and maybe at the bottom. But th- during the road itself, you know, as you're going up the hill, you're right, just put a wall up. It's already there, guys. I mean, let's not make this any more difficult than it is. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's um, it's it's frustrating, and, it, and it's going to come down to will council decide that this is important enough to earmark money for it, you know, and and will will staff kind of embrace uh, that sense of urgency and say, okay, we're going to bring people in to work on this thing, and if those things happen, then we'll get this finished in a timely fashion, you know. But but again, there's this this is kind of perception that we can only do one thing at a time, and well, you're already getting a bike lane on Bay Street, so what's the rush? You know, the rush is that we could do both, and we should do both, and the, the network as a whole will be better the faster we get things done. Well, let's connect the dots here. I, w- there was a discussion a, a month or so ago, and we had uh, Councillor Skelly and Councillor Whitehead on the show at different times, and they've both committed that they want to put some money into J- Upper James and try to improve that street. It's a, it's in need of a facelift. It's It has not, not a whole lot of work been done there for a long, long time, and, and I thought, okay, that's a great idea. But why not start at the top and, and right, right down to the bottom? In other words, include the Claremont project in that, in those the, the, those improvements that they're anticipating to do right there. That that only makes sense, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. I mean, Upper James, as it is right now, uh, it, is a traffic sewer. You know, it, it's not a, a pleasant street. It's not a pleasant. Nobody enjoys being on Upper James, whether you're walking or driving in a car or, you know, God forbid, riding on a bike. It is absolutely an unpleasant street for just about everybody, and it could be a fantastic street. I mean, I've, you know, for years, this is a little bit um, a little bit kind of off the wall, but I've had this idea that Upper James could make this wonderful grand boulevard coming into the city. We have so much right-of-way, you know, and then we have these giant off-street parking lots. There's a huge amount of space that we could put into making something really exciting there. Uh, short of that, we could make it a little bit less awful, and we could do that without too much difficulty. And they're talking the talk. And and I think that's fabulous, but they don't seem to. And nobody seems to want to take ownership. You know, it's it's almost funny. You just mentioned the wards that would be impacted by this. Uh, it's it's almost as if the mountain accesses oftentimes are, are are nobody's responsibility, nobody's problem, nobody. You know, in other words, you know, if you're a, a downtown councillor, then you don't worry about it. Once you start going up the hill, you're in you're in limbo. I mean, it's it's. And, and I know that's technically not the way it is, but it just seems when it gets talking about responsibilities and commitment to improving those roadways and bike lanes, et cetera, you don't get much talk. No, perhaps there's a bit of a mismatch there because, uh, I mean, technically the escarpment accesses are all part of the lower city wards because the, um, the, the mountain accesses start at the top of the brow, but they're widely perceived as mostly benefiting uh, upper city residents who want to be able to access downtown. So the people kind of who are uh, quote-unquote paying for it are not necessarily the people who are using it. And so, as you say, uh, no councillor really feels as though this is the thing that they need to to take ownership for. And that's that's an unfortunate thing. I mean, a city uh, needs these kinds of, um, I refer to it as connective tissues, you know, that, that, that bring different parts of the city together. And the escarpment is, is you know, one of the most beautiful um, places in the entire city. It's, it's, it's really, in a lot of ways, what makes Hamilton uh, unique, having this incredible ribbon of, of natural land running right through the city. And we persist in treating it as a barrier. You know, I mean, if it was a river, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't talk about, um, you know, about two different cities, you know, on different sides of the river. We would build bridges and we would celebrate this beautiful river. But because it's an escarpment, we have a completely different mindset and it becomes uh, you know, we call it the mountain, right? It's not really a mountain. It's an, it's uh, it's not that big. It's not you know ten thousand meters tall. It's a hundred meters tall, and it's very easy to get back and forth across it. But we don't think of it in those terms, and that's that's unfortunate. It's it separates us when it should connect us. Well, I mean, we're we're talking around the issue here. I mean, we talked about the Upper James improvements. Uh, you, you remember the debate or the discussion? I guess it was. I think there was unanimity about this about creating more vistas along the top of the escarpment there too, uh, because it is a unique uh, a feature that we have here that a lot of other cities would love to have, where you can actually look over there, whether it's Sam Lawrence Park or any other place like this. Well, and again, so that it goes right back to the idea of let's make sure that people can access those vistas if you're going to actually do that. Uh, and that means people from the lower city, too. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to drive your car. You should be able to take your bike. And and on what mountain access right now do you feel safe as a cyclist, Ryan? I, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I'm a, I mean, I'm a lifelong, um, you know, sort of day-to-day cyclist. I ride in mixed traffic. I ride year-round. 
Uh, and honestly, I'm not comfortable riding on any mountain access. If I have to go up or down, I'll either take the, uh, the Escarpment Trail up you know, to Mohawk Sports Park, or I'll take the, uh, the radial trail up to Scenic Drive, or, um, or I'll walk my bike up one of the staircases, which is kind of cumbersome because it's, it's, you know, it's a heavy mountain bike. There's no really, really good way to get up or down the escarpment. There's that kind of uh, very, very narrow painted bike lane on about two-thirds of the upbound uh, jolly cut, but then it disappears right when you need it the most, and, uh, and there's nothing on the downbound side. So really, you're, you're out of luck. So this only makes sense then for for them to to look at this design and say, look at this has got to happen. I, I don't want to see. Let's assume they're going to move forward to the Upper James improvements that they've talked about. I don't want to see a repeat of what they did on West Fifth. I mean, they put an awful lot of work uh, on the roadway there, right at the top of the West Fifth Hill, over by the, where the St. Joe's uh, Healthcare Center is, the, the Middle Health Center, and and there was no bike lane. No, and I figured there was an ideal opportunity because the whole thing was torn up. They could have just said, yeah, well, by the way, let's let's put the bike lane over here on the right-hand side, and there's nothing there. I mean, they, oh, exactly. they, they've done there – there's a road diet there. They did all the right things except that. And yeah, it, that that's, that's an unbelievable missed opportunity. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, everyone there, – there's a lot of uh, kind of finger-pointing, you know, a staff are sort of saying, well, it wasn't, you know, identified as a priority. The counselor is saying, well, staff said that we didn't really have room. Um with with real leadership, you know, if the councillor had said, look, this is a priority, this is important, I want you to make this happen, I think it would have happened. Because ultimately, staff take their direction from council. And uh, and if they're not getting strong leadership on these things, then, you know, they're not, I mean, let's be honest, uh, we've had this discussion before, we know what happens when staff stick their necks out and actually take a leadership role on things, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. So they're going to keep their heads down and do what they're told. And if what they're told to do doesn't involve building these kinds of connections, then they're not going to happen. Well, and let's be clear, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, this is on council right now. It's not on staff. I want to be clear about that because oftentimes staff have become the, the, the whipping post for an awful lot of the the problems that are going on down there. But, you know, every one of the councillors, and you've heard them use the analogy, Ryan, you know, we you know we do the rowing and you guys do the, you know, the steer, we'll, tell, we'll steer, you guys row. That's what the, the, the analogy is. We set right. the policy, staff follow up what we tell them to do. Well, they haven't told them to do this. So that's why it hasn't been done. It's right around those 16 people around the council table. And I know it's not all of them, but, I mean, somebody's got to take the lead. I mean, this is a, a, a project that needs a champion. Sure. And, uh, you know, and the, and the tragedy, of course, is that this project has been on the books since 2009. It became a priority last year when a, a person was killed riding home from his job as a, as a school teacher. I mean, it, you know, this wasn't... Um, you know, some sort of there, there's kind of a stereotype about who rides a bike, right? It's it's you know latte sipping, urban elitists, or it's you know uh, feckless millennials, or whatever. This was a, <laughs> a, a middle-aged professional family man riding home from a day of work educating young children, and he was killed on a street that he had every right to be on, but which wasn't designed to make safe space for him. That's what caused this sense of urgency in the first place, and to. To kind of lose that just a year later is, is very, it's, it's really disappointing because I feel like a year isn't enough time to stop caring about something like this. Are we over this debate as to whether or not we even need bike lanes? Have we crossed that hill yet? I, I would hope we're past that point. I mean, we've <laughs> council approved a, a, a cycling master plan in 2009. I mean, that's, you know, and they're, they're on the I mean, we're very shortly we're going to be receiving uh, an update on that master plan because it's been rolled into the transportation master plan, which staff have been reviewing for the past year or so. So we're going to be getting like we we you know we we've, we've been committed on paper to complete streets and putting people first, you know, really since 2001 and the original transportation master plan. So I would hope that in terms of, of understanding why this stuff is important, I can't imagine why there would be any member of council today who wouldn't understand. The question is, do they care enough to make it a priority? Do they care enough to put the actual budget muscle behind it to see it happen? Because I'm still hearing the feedback, and I'm, I'm sure you guys do, uh, with Raise the Hammer every time you would do something about this. So somebody's going to send off a comment and, you know, well, I drove by Cannon Street and I didn't see anybody there, so why do we even build these damn things? Uh, of course, the argument to that is, well, I, I walked down Charlton, I said there's nobody on the sidewalk. Maybe we should take the sidewalk away then. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, if, if you build them, they will be used. And you're not going to have the same volume as you would with motorists. I, I, I get that. But uh, we're, not, we're not following up. They're talking the talk, and they're simply not following through on that. And that's awfully frustrating. And, it's, you know, it's easy. There's, there's always going to be – I mean, change is hard. Change is scary. 
you know, um, going from what you know to something that you don't know is, I mean, as human beings, we're, we're hardwired to be, to get anxious about stuff like that. There's, there's no shame in that. The, the problem is we shouldn't allow that kind of knee-jerk fear to drive policy. We should understand it. We should hear it. We should respect it. We should uh, make, you know, every reasonable attempt to ensure that things that we implement take those concerns into account. You know, and I think on Charlton and Herkimer, it's a wonderful example of staff actually doing their due diligence. <clears throat> and Councillor Farr sitting down with people to understand what their fears and concerns are and saying, okay, we're going to address those. We're going to make sure that what we have still allows for emergency vehicles and still allows for parking and still allows for, you know, for, for throughput. And, uh, and when you do that, when you take those as, okay, this is an opportunity for us to make sure this project is better, then we end up with a better project. But if you use it as an excuse not to do anything, then we remain stuck in a status quo, which I think everybody agrees, at least on an intellectual level, that the way we've been doing things is not the right way to go forward. Exactly. So, then, so, we, so we agree on a way to move forward. We don't just stay stuck in neutral forever. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Cautiously good news, I guess, with uh, the United Steelworkers. Uh, the union representing the steelworkers at Lake Erie, uh, that's local 8782, uh, have now signed a letter of support in favor of the bedrock industry's bid to buy that company. I don't like to call it U.S. Steel Canada anymore, but that's just me. Bill Ferguson is the president of USW Local 8782. He joins us here on the program to uh, bring us up to speed on this. Morning, Bill. How are you doing today? Bill, how are you? I'm doing good, buddy. Top of the world. Top of the world. Uh, let's talk about what's been going on over the last couple of weeks. I know you made a YouTube video about this, and uh, explain to, uh, to our CHML listeners exactly where you guys are now. Well, we put in a letter of support for the bid. Now, as you can see lately, things have been moving forward fairly rapidly with Bedrock bid. Uh, we are short of a memorandum. We don't have a memorandum. There's a couple of pieces which are the big pieces. It's the pension and the benefits issue. We're still moving ahead with that. But at this particular time, things are moving ahead. Uh, we've got to be able to get into serious negotiations. Now, that by no means means everything is going to come out well and successful. What it means is that we're going to get into serious negotiations with all the parties about what it would look like in a bedrock world. All right. What moved you to actually do the letter now? Was it, was it something positive that happened? And who have you, been, have you been talking to? Is it, is it all the players around the table, or was it just bedrock themselves? Where, where, where were you and who you've been at with, with in the last little while? We've been having conversations with bedrock. Okay. We've been talking to them about what the future looks like. Uh, we've been talking with them about what collective agreements look like. Uh, a lot of it's still confidential, but in saying that, full knowing that at some point all this will be public. But we've been having those conversations, multilateral talks. U.S. Steel's made a settlement with Bedrock. Uh, so we're moving ahead, but we're short of a complete memorandum. Now, we have to complete that memorandum, and everybody has to be serious at the table in order to complete it. And you know that the big issues for everybody is going to be the pensions and the benefits. Mm -hmm. So we got to move ahead. Now, everybody has to signal that they're serious about moving ahead with these conversations. Now, I hope that everything's going to turn out well, and I have a positive attitude about things turning out well. Hopefully, I'll be on the show with you in a month, maybe two months, saying that things are great. Uh, but in the meantime, we have to have some more conversations. Now, I have to give kudos to the local members of Parliament. I, Philomena Tassi, Bob Bertina, Scott Duval, Dave Christofferson, they've all been working very hard on our behalf to try and make things move along. But we haven't got there yet with the feds. We still have to have conversations with the federal government. There are still issues to be cleared with the provincial government. So think a bit about stepping into the second phase of this. Now, are we serious? We have to signal that we're serious, and, and we want to sit down and have serious conversations. I, the only way that this is going to be resolved one way or another is to have those serious conversations with the other players. Well, the other, so, from I mean, from the political standpoint, Bill, and, and it's gratifying to know that the local MPs are all on side and, and working toward this. That's, that's good to know. But you really need to hear from some ministers, too, don't you? Absolutely. And what I found out, and I, I kind of you and I both know this, is that the political machine moves at the speed of a sloth. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's really maddening, you know, but we have to have those conversations. People have to be serious in these conversations. Uh, we have to talk about the problems that be and how we're going to resolve those problems. 
and uh, to signal, all right, let's talk turkey. Let's sit down. Let's actually get to it. Uh, and we have no problem moving forward with the bedrock deal if all of the concerns are taken care of. And, of course, that's, that's a big question. But the other, when you think about it, you don't want to be left at the ticket uh, masters while the train's leaving the station either. You know, get on to it. Get moving with it. See where it takes us. It's a big, big problem, but it is a step forward. Let me ask you about, I understand that there's got to be some sense of confidentiality here when you're getting into some of the nitty-gritty here, Bill, but it, it just in your overall conversations with the people from Bedrock, uh, what, what was your impression? Are, are they committed to this operation? I mean, because there are those that say, look, you know, these, this is the sort of company that just buys things and flips them uh, and may not have a long-term commitment here. What, what sense did you get in, in the, those talks? Well, uh, when you look overall, uh, and, and again, I'm going to, sort of walk on the edge of confidentiality sure, here. But, sure, uh, the, the feeling that I got from the bedrock, and I mean, conversations that we've had, you know, time of the commitment, how long are you going to be there, what does it mean if you leave town, uh, if you do, under what conditions do you leave town, all those conversations have been had. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I, As it stands right now, when you look at some of the other contenders, I think that at this particular point, when you're looking at the wherewithal to actually do a deal, uh, and when you look at the character of the people that we're dealing with, that's not a bad thing either. Believe me, during this process, I've met some characters. <laughs> I can imagine. I can I, I can hardly wait for the book, Bill, when you finally do write this thing. <laughs> I tell you, it's gone from everything from a bunch of guys who got together at Tim Hortons, pooled their coffee money, and decided they were going to buy a steel mill to you know actual credible players. And during the journey, <laughs> you see an awful lot happen, and it really is an eye opener. Well, because you know, let's let's face it. If we're looking down the road right now. Uh, you don't want to be going through this whole process again in another four or five years. Uh, you know, with, with these guys saying, "Okay, we've we've done what we want. Now we're out of here," because uh, then then where are you? I mean, hopefully the industry and 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 the, these two operations, both Hamilton and, and Lake Erie, are going to be in much better shape. But the reality here is that you guys need some long term commitment and some continuity. Absolutely, and you know, the last time when you look at what we went through the last time, and I mean, U.S. Steel arriving. And the nightmare that that was, and the lessons that we learned from that. Uh, you know, the federal government was all in favor. This was a great thing. Uh, they sign a deal, and then they disappear. They're nowhere to be heard from, and they know all these things are happening. I, you know, I saw the article a little while ago with Minister Clement uh, talking about how uh, he was in favor of doing something about it. However, he was replaced in his portfolio and didn't get the opportunity to do anything. But sitting on this side of the fence, the only thing I heard was dead silence. And you see a process that just completely got away from all the players involved. Uh, nobody wanted to stand up. Nobody wanted to say anything. Now, Minister Clement, give credit to him, was that he said the union was right all along, that this was a problem and was going to be a problem. So I was interested in those comments, but it still didn't develop into any action by the Fed, by the feds well yeah tony clement was on our show when he was still the industry minister and made those very comments uh, it, this is back when they decided or at least he decided anyway to take legal action against u.s steel uh and and we thought this is fabulous wow the federal government's actually standing up for these people and, and like you say there was a cabinet shuffle he got moved to a different department and uh, all of a sudden the whole thing just died so i i assume somebody upstairs in the corner office in parliament hill just decided no we're not going down that road Something happened there anyway, and it just seemed as if they just totally forgot about you guys after that. Well, yeah, and nobody wants to touch it because it's a problem. And, you know, when you think about it, the government is there to deal with problems. But politics say otherwise. And when things start to go south, what you find is people want to step away from the problem. And that's why, moving forward, it has to be an inclusive process. And we have to get to the bottom of this because the one thing that I don't want to happen is I don't want this to happen again. Yeah, we need that security going forward. We need to be able to have uh, our workers, the members in there, have to have that security going forward. And that's the one thing that we need to really nail down. 
And when we're talking about the big issues, and, you know, the big issues, OPEBs and pensions, that's going to take some doing. And those talks have to start in earnest. So signaling that, okay, we're ready to rock and roll. We're ready to look at this. We're ready to sit down and try and find a way through that. Now, there's no guarantees in anything. And this multilateral talks, uh, you know, for everybody you talk to, somebody else has a different opinion. Uh, You know, it used to be that you would sit down with a company and do a deal. But now you've got so many players in the mix with so many varied interests, some of the players active, some of them not. So if everybody is serious, let's sit down and get this done because we need a memorandum at the end of the day. At the end of the day, I need a complete deal that I can sit down with my members and discuss. Let me ask you I something. Ain't got that yet. Uh, and, and I know Gary Howe in Hamilton at 10.05 doesn't have that yet. That's why they haven't even issued a letter at this stage. Uh, and Because uh, you've got issues that are very similar, very... uh, much the same uh, with with both uh, locals here, Bill, but uh, the different impacts on those as well. So this is is a real balancing act that you guys have to go through. Oh, absolutely. And and I know the guys down there are working really hard. They work diligently trying to get get through this. There is differences, uh, but it's the same issues. The pension benefits, how are they going to be handled? I, well, Gary has said that he got the impression, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here, and I understand we're going down that road of confidentiality again, that he didn't he, he didn't feel comfortable that these guys, meaning Bedrock, uh, were 100% behind the idea of assuming the responsibility for pensions and benefits. Now, I don't know where they are now in those conversations, but, but without going too bur- and breaching their confidentiality, do you get that same feeling? Well, what I think... And this is, again, I'm trying to dance around not betraying everybody here. But I think that at the end of the day, if this thing is done properly, and if we negotiate seriously, we could end up in a position that was actually better than the one we were in. Now, that's reaching. That's me going high. But you have to find out. You have to get in, you have to find out, you have to see what people are saying, and you have to know what their positions are. And, of course, with any negotiation, the opening ask is usually not what the final deal is. So we have to explore this right to the nth degree. Have you given them a number? Actually, no. I, You know, our positions are are pretty solid as far as... Well, you, you guys have been consistent all through this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we will remain consistent. And, and you've had different people that were kicking the tires for you, for, for this operation, both this Hamilton and, your, and the Lake Erie. Uh, and some of them have been very blunt and said right up front, we're not even going to consider taking on those responsibilities. Others have said, sure, we'll do this. So are, is the reason you haven't given a number yet is because you're not comfortable with their position yet? Well, I think that... When we talk about everybody who came through and had a look, we had some who came back and said, we have no problems, we'll let things go as they are. But again, diligence. Are they actually capable of doing that? Because I don't want to end up in this position again three years down the road, five years down the road. If there's a bump in the economy, all of a sudden I'm back in the same position again. And, you know, in the time that I've been president of the local, I've been doing this quite a bit. So who is real and who isn't? What is the best chances of us being able to get through this? And are we locked up sufficiently? Are we as close as we can get? And are we solid? Uh, It's easy for the guys at Tim Hortons to come up and say, we'll leave everything as it is. And you know what? Something magical would happen. Everything is going to be fine. We're going to be making lots of money. I'm, you can't really back that up. And for someone who wants to back it up, and quite frankly, Bill, tomorrow, if somebody backs up a truck full of money and dumps it on us and all our problems are over, thank goodness. Boy, but, you are, you're a glasses half full kind of guy, aren't you? Oh, yeah, I tell you, <laughs> if, if it works, we've got to find out how it works. And the diligence on the part of the union is extreme because we make sure that we don't buy a pig in a poke. We have to make sure that everything that we do, and like I say, everything is going to be public. Everybody's going to be uh, accountable as we go down the road. 
So we want to make sure we make all the right moves, we ask all the right questions, and who knows? But we're there. And I guess, hey, next stop, we're going to have to have some talks with the feds. We're going to have to have some more talks with the province. we got to see what all the parties in these multilateral talks are talking about. Well, one of those and, discussions is not just about this contract and getting a deal settled. And you know, obviously the, uh, the feds have to give their blessing to bedrock if this is going to go through, just like they did with U.S. Steel back in those days. But are, are you also having discussions about the legislation? I mean, because you've you've been to court so many times right now. Uh, you probably should get an honorary law degree for the number of times you've attended. But here's the deal. Every time there's been a decision that's gone against the union here, the the explanation has always been, well, that's the letter of the law according to CCAA, and, and it's just, just about creditors. It's not about the, the retirees or the workers. Well, clearly that means that there's a, a void in that that legislation, and there's got to be some protection for the people that are working and those that have retired, and that's not there with that legislation. Absolutely, Bill. You could drive a truck through it, and I can tell you we have been having talks along those lines. And I think everybody recognizes the problem. It's old legislation. It really doesn't do anything for the people who work in the plant. It's all about what is the company going to do. And, of course, you've seen it. People lose their benefits, uh, all in favor of the company making a go. Now, there's a rational approach to that, a lot of other things that can be done. But this legislation, even when you get to the issue of trade, uh, and, I mean, you look at the extremes now in the United States, and you look at what's happening here. Uh, we had foreign countries just dumping steel on our docks, and the feds can't react quick enough before the damage is done. You know, it's like having a half-hour delay on your burglar alarm. The cops don't come until after the damage is done. Uh, we need to be able to have fair trade, because we can compete in a fair market. But when you have trade deals that actually put you at a disadvantage because enforcement is lax, those types of conversations also have to be had you remember when we first started out on this adventure, uh, the Chinese were dumping steel and they were at a ridiculously low price. You could not make a ton of steel for how much they were selling it for. Yet the reaction was extremely slow. Again, moving like a three-toed slug. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk about this uh, issue of, of carding, police checks, whatever the case might be. Uh, we had, uh, of course, uh, Councillor Ferguson on uh, the chair of the Police Services Board a little while ago to talk about the new policy that's being developed, uh, which is really along provincial guidelines. We'll get into that in a second. But uh, one group is uh, is still upset about this. The uh, City's Committee Against Racism uh, is suggesting that uh, the Police Services Board didn't do enough consultation on this. And uh, there's been an awful lot of, uh, of acrimony that goes on. Uh, Councillor Matthew Green actually said about the board, uh, that board is culturally incompetent. It's unprepared and unequipped to have this conversation. Uh, those frightened words. Lloyd Ferguson is the chair of the Police Services Board, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to talk about this. Good morning, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. All right. Listen, there's, there seems to be a, a, a disconnect here between these two committees. Uh, what have you been doing to try to bridge that gap? Well, first of all, I don't agree with it. Uh, I did uh, attend the meeting last night of the... Um of the Committee Against Racism, and we had a good conversation. It was a, a nice environment, too, because it's a group of about 10 of us in, rather than this formal setting of the Police Services Board. And I think we're all aligned now that uh, we've come a long ways. Uh, there may be some further work to do, but we need to uh, find the balance um, and, and, and move forward and try it. And uh, and that seemed to be the consensus last night with this committee. I've, I did not hear them say that uh, they did this last night. They did not say to me that we haven't consulted enough. I mean, we consulted uh, at our last police board meeting, and the committee did, in fact, do a de- have a delegation and did a presentation. But if you like, I'm just going to back the reverse the uh, the tape here for a minute. And uh, there was a, a lot of uh, concern uh, amongst uh, people who felt that uh, a lot of policing was motivated by racism and racists, and, and, and uh, more in Toronto than anywhere else. In fact, when I attend the, uh, the meetings of the Ontario uh, Association of Police Services Boards in the smaller communities, what's this all about? We don't, we don't, why was there a big issue being made of this? Because it's not a problem in our community. But in large urban centres, particularly Toronto and, and Hamilton, Ottawa, there was some concern. And so um, we took delegations uh, about a year and a half ago and had a lot of people fill the council chambers uh, concerned about this whole issue of street checks, which they call carding. 
shortly after that, the province, the Minister of Correctional Services intervenes, says we want to make this a province-wide issue uh, resolution, and so uh, we're going to ask all the police services to stand down, uh, let us do the public consultation, and let us prepare uh, uh, a piece of legislation so that everybody's playing by the same rules. And our board fully agreed to that, and so did the police service, so did the senior command. Uh, let the province put, to, put it together, and whatever they come out with, we'll, we'll follow it. And so they did, and they did a lot of public consultation. I know I attended a meeting in Hamilton. Uh, Councillor Green was there and left after a minute and a half, so I don't know how he makes these kind of bold statements. But they uh, uh, so did the public consultation. They come out with a couple of drafts, which we had the opportunity to comment on, once again doing public consultation. And then uh, they made the statement that, uh, okay, here's the legislation. We're going to enact this on January the 1st, 2017. And, but each board has to put together their own policy as a race of how they're going to follow this legislation. And so um, we retained a, a, a lawyer who specializes in this and, and works for other boards also in putting together a draft copy of our policy. Well, that was presented to our board in June, but we couldn't finish it because the the um, the, the ministry had not uh, informed us of what the curriculum would be at the Ontario Police College, and also there's still a roundtable meeting to make some amendments. That got finished in early September, and we were able to finalize the draft policy. So that was placed before the board uh, just for consideration at the September meeting, and, and uh, it was a walk-on item because it just came in at the last minute, and we said we'll debate this in October, which we did. And in October, we decided we better go out and do further public consultation and invite delegations to come to the November meeting so we can hear if anybody has any concerns. We'll waive the delegation rules where the chair can uh, agree to a delegation request and have it come on in November, uh, which they did. And I, I um, uh, approved uh, the delegation request, and quite frankly, there was only two. And so we heard them last week at the police service board meeting and, and then referred it back to our uh, legal counsel and our administrator to respond to some of the comments that were made. And then it'll come back to the board for final approval in December because we have to enact it on January the 1st. So I, I don't know where this... Uh, uh, the comment is that they were still on a big disconnect with the Committee Against Racism because uh, we actually came to a, a consensus last night. I was able to answer in a less formal environment most of their questions. Uh, they still had some questions around what is the training when it relates to dealing with racism. I've agreed to bring back either the chief or our superintendent in charge of training to answer that because I felt I wasn't qualified to, to answer what the physical curriculum is in the training. So we'll, we'll do that probably in the January meeting. Let me ask you, and I get that, the timeline jibes exactly with what you talked to us about a little while ago when you started this whole process, but you saw some of the comments in the media over the last couple of days, I'm sure, Lloyd, where they're saying, yeah, there was only two delegations at that meeting, but that's because we're just tired of talking, but you guys don't seem to listen. Uh, there seemed to be a great deal of frustration. Did you sense that last night when you talked with the committee? No, not at all. Not at all. They were very professional, as they were when they did the delegations. I, I don't know how they can say we're not listening. I mean, the, the ministry did a, a, a numerous public consultation meetings, put out two drafts. We've had it out in front of the public since September. Uh, it's been posted on our website. It's still there. You can go on the Hamilton Police Services website, take a look at our policy. Um, but, I, you know, I quite frankly, uh, when there was only two delegations uh, requested, I thought, geez, maybe we're close. And, and there, there is a flip side to this, too, Bill, which I think we need to get out, is, is that um, there's been a significant reduction in the number of street checks our service is doing. In fact, we peaked out, I'm just going to pull the numbers up here, we peaked out in 2011 at 5,423, and in 2015, there are only 43. And so there's been a huge reduction, which, quite frankly, uh, can be uh, concerning. Because that yeah, because, I mean, people are going to look at that number and say, well, I guess. The, but what I'm hearing is that the, the police don't want to do it anymore because they're afraid of the repercussions. Well, they have a chill. I mean, if you look at uh, the allegation that Councillor Green has brought against a certain officer, and that's going to a public hearing in, in, on December 15th. But it's put a chill over our, our, our frontline officers. They will all tell you, including our senior command, that it's a very important tool for them to keep our community safe, which is to talk to people. And now... They're chilled about doing that. And the stats show it when we drop down to only 43 from over 5,000 in a matter of five years. 
And, and so uh, we got to watch both sides of this as we initiate it. Uh, do we seem to be uh, appeasing the concerns of the uh, um, that people may feel that our, some of our officers are racist, which we don't agree with, but if the perception's there, we have to manage that. And is our community less safe now that we're not uh, talking to people anymore? And, and you know, that's a, that'll be a subjective uh, question. But do the bad guys feel better now about carrying guns because they know that if an officer walks up to them and talks to them, they can simply walk away, which is in the legislation, that if, if an officer comes up and you feel uncomfortable talking to them, unless you're put under arrest, you can walk away. And, and so is that going to make our community less safe? And, and so when we roll this out on January the 1st, we'll be watching both sides of that to make sure we're getting it right. A couple of things about that. Uh, I understand that that's enshrined in the legislation now, this uh, idea of walking away. But if I, I believe, because I've talked to police officers about that, that was always the case. Uh, it's just that now I've, uh, my understanding is that this, this legislation, or I guess it's still proposed legislation, says that the officer has to inform the individual that they have the right to walk away. Correct. And, they, and, and also if, when they fill out, if they do fill out a card with their name and address, uh, they have to give them a copy of it too. And so they know exactly what's being kept in. mean, our own policy says that, Mr. T- our Chief, uh, Chief Gert, you must have the training in place so your officers know exactly what this new legislation requires them to do and have that ready for January the 1st. You must renew that training every three years. You must report annually to the board. And there's a whole list of criteria in our policy of information we want from the chief on his annual report. And, and so we can, we can measure yeah, we, we know how many black people there are in the city and how many black people were carded, how many white people, how many Asian people. And, and uh, through the census, we know exactly how, what the population base is. And, and, you know, on another statistic for you, CBC did this story, uh, the National. Uh, they did an analysis across the country and took a look at police forces and the number of officers in relative to the, um, uh, the population. And, and uh, so what's the ratio of... Asian people versus Asian officers. And we were the second best in the country uh, as far as having a right cross-section of officers we have on the street. And I think we should be very proud of that. And, and uh, when we recruit, we're bringing in a, some, we brought some new officers into the fall. We're bringing some more in in January. We really search out people that don't have that adversarial, you know, tough guy uh, personality, but are, are people that are diffused by talking. And, and having conversations with people. We've tried to respond to this horrible problem of mental health that's going up act exponentially with, the, uh, with, with putting a mental health worker inside the cruiser on, with seven cruisers, uh, seven officers, to be able to get people with mental health issues directly to the help they need rather than burden the, the uh, 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 emergency rooms at St. Joseph's Hospital. And that's called the Rapid Response Unit. And, and so we're trying to address all these issues but back to the street check issues, uh, this thing is going to move forward. The legislation is clear about that. Our policy now, uh, we will answer some of the questions that the, the two delegations come in with. Well, let's talk about some of those, because the common one that I hear, and, and it came up again in the article, I don't know if it came up at the meeting that you had with these people last night either, Lloyd, is, is look, at, it's one thing, because oftentimes they say, well, you know, when the police talk about this, they characterize it as, well, we should have the right to talk to people, you know, it's, it's to find out what's going on. But to take it to that next level, where all of a sudden they're gaining information, and, and in, in other words, starting a file, as some people characterizing it on, and they say that's, that's, that's going over the top. They say that's going too far. And, and my understanding is, is the legislation still allows that to happen? Is that right? It does. But, but if you don't want to talk to the officer, you can walk away. Yeah, the card is just that. It's about a two-inch by three-inch card where you just get the name and the address of the person. It's kept confidential. It's in the police files. And under the new legislation, they got to be taken out every five years. Uh, so the, the, we only store them for five years, but only uh, the chief or designate has access to those cards. And 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 this was the same discussion uh, that we had when, when closed circuit cameras were, were being installed, of course, in uh, public areas downtown, etc., like that. There was always this concern about well, who's going to see them? What, what about the information? How long is it kept? So are, those are clearly defined now with this legislation. It is, and and, and you know. I'm, I was actually quite impressed with the, uh, the committee last night because I, I posed a problem to them. How would you handle this? There's in a neighborhood, 
there's been a, a lot of car thefts, a, a lot of house break-ins, a lot of property damage done. And there's an individual uh, walking down their street at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm not trained to know what a suspicious person looks like, but the police officers are. And, and so when this officer is driving down the street and sees that person, should he drive by or should he stop and have a conversation with them? And, and, and so that's the question. Uh, that, that's the purpose of, of doing these street checks, just to confirm why is someone out there. Now, if they say, look, I'm a Ph.D. student at McMaster. I was uh, meeting a colleague of mine at their home. We worked uh, the wee hours because we got a deadline, and I'm just going home. Fine. Go on your way, and uh, good luck and uh, with your thesis. And, and, but if it's someone else with a crowbar in his hand, you know, you want him to talk to him and, and find out what he's doing there. And, and uh, so it's once again, as I said at the start of this conversation, it's finding that balance. That what is not going to compromise public safety versus what uh, you know, could be perceived as racist when the officer sits and talks to a person of color, for example. All right, and let's talk about the other side of it. And from the police service standpoint, now you've got this new legislation and, and, and new template for this and, and some new parameters here. In hindsight now, Lloyd, is it is it a fair assumption to suggest that maybe the training that officers were receiving before this was not adequate enough? I can't comment on that because I, I'm not familiar with what training they go through. You, you've got to get the chief on or our superintendent in charge of our training facilities to answer those questions for you because I, quite frankly, as board chair, am not don't attend those training sessions. Um, I've never gone through the police college, so I don't know. Because it just seems as if that's maybe where there's a bit of a disconnect and a problem is, is maybe some of the officers weren't sure exactly how far they could go and in what circumstances they had to carry out and or in what circumstances they would have to back off. And if you leave it up to individual discretion, uh, there is no policy then. It depends on the individual who's there at the time. Yeah, and and that was the one item that was left outstanding at our meeting last night at the Committee Against Racism. What exactly are they trained to do? And and so uh, I undertook to says I'll bring back the right person to answer those questions for you. So uh, it, it's an outstanding question you have, and it's an outstanding question they have, and I can't answer it, but I'll get the answers. With that, uh, do you feel that uh, the, the committee that you met with last night is, is has a deeper understanding here? I'm not necessarily ever figuring that they're going to totally accept this. I mean, there's always going to be some areas of concern here. But do you feel, if there was a disconnect there, do you feel you built a bridge? I th- Yeah, I th- and, and I think they, they agree that we've got to try it. And, and 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 try to make sure that we're not compromising public safety, but at the same time we're fixing the, the issues that they have. And we'll, we'll know that uh, you know, the, the chief has got a report once per year, so it'll go in for 2017. And early in 2018, we'll have a, a presentation from the chief to the board on what the results were. Well, I don't know if we're ever going to shoot for the goal of everybody just hugging and, and singing kumbaya, but at least if there's going to be some understanding about the policy here, that's, that's obviously a big step forward. And... Uh, I, I hope everybody understands that we are listening, and we are taking action, and we are going to find this balance and this resolution. And uh, I know for Councillor Green to sit and say we're not, not listening, that, that's not correct. I mean, we've worked very hard at this, and we, we as much as anybody, want to get it right. And, and so we'll roll this out, see what happens in 2017, and then I'll be happy to come back in your show after that and explain to you what some shortfalls may be or, or how it's working. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.